You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 85 of a Life in Ruins podcast, reinvestigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I'm joined by my co-host, Connor Johnnan. Dave will be back in the next couple of episodes. He's currently trying to keep Strider from being canceled, hashtag cancel Strider. Today, we are joined by Matt Reed, Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma. Noah, Matt, how are you doing today? Noah, uh, pretty good. It's been a kind of recuperative day. And, uh, yeah, I'm just relaxing. Yeah. You've had a, uh, a busy week that I was, uh, I was a part of, and we'll get back, we'll get to that later, later in the episode. So you're, you're a tribal historic preservation officer and we'll say TIPO cause that's way easier than just repeating tribal historic preservation officer yes. all of the time, but you do have experiences in museums. So, I mean, just kind of leading up to that, like what were your first experiences uh, with museums or in museums growing up, like were you a dinosaur nerd, history nerd, or like one of those kids that collected bugs? Oh Lord, uh, history nerd. My f- dad, in particular, was a, a veteran from Vietnam, and so I, when he come home, he was in the reserves in the National Guard for a while, and and then all my grandfathers and uncles and and everybody was in the military. They'd all been in Korea and World War II and Vietnam, and. Uh, Man, I was just surrounded by all that. So I was just naturally drawn to, you know, World War II and all the the movies that you see as a kid and everything. And then it just kind of spiraled. And that's really what got me interested in history, to be honest. So, Carlton, is that the same experience that you had? Is that what, because you are also a history military nerd to a crazy degree. Is that a similar sort of path? Yeah, I see myself as like a, a, a clone of Matt sometimes because we have some very similar experiences. Yeah, my dad and uncles all served during Vietnam. My grandfather served in World War II. And like I was always surrounded by that history, history stuff. And so, yeah, I was always drawn to the Air and Space Museum in D.C. growing up. That was my favorite one, as you know, Connor, during our D.C. visit. We just have a ridiculous knowledge of World War II aircraft, but... Yeah, I can, I can, I can relate. Dad, Matt, when he went to the reserves, was he with like the 45th? No. Well, actually, yes, he was now that I think about it. So he, I'm not sure like the sequence and everything because I was just little, but um, I know for a long time, seems like, because, so I was born in 71 and he finally, I think got out in 80 or 81 and the whole time he was, seems like in the 45th, he was a recruiter for a while. And uh, one of the, my biggest memories is that he was about to go like full time and uh, we had to go down to Fort Sill and get military ID and physical and all this stuff. And oh, I just thought that was awesome. And uh, we went in. If, if nobody's familiar with Fort Sill, the post was established, I think, in 1869. And so you can see the origi- original quadrangle there. And there's a uh, guardhouse that they kind of promote as like you know having housed geronimo when he was a prisoner of war and they have some of his things inside there on display and i can remember vividly seeing that and then i went back since then seen it as an adult but it made a huge impact on me were you growing up in in oklahoma the entire time and like what access did you have to like museums or historical societies um, or, or or historic places growing up. Yeah, that's kind of funny. So I grew up uh, about 15 miles, 15, 20 miles north of Pawnee, Oklahoma, in Fairfax and in Ralston, most of my youth. And so it's outside of, it's actually in the Osage Reservation, the Osage Territory. And so the only museums or anything kind of like humanities-wise is you know, for like school trips and things, it was either Woola Rock up in Bartlesville or Pawnee Bills Museum in Pawnee. And that was it. Everything else was movies. We had, you know, in that time we had three channels, so not a lot of movies. But uh, yeah, not not a lot of humanities in small town Oklahoma. <laughs> Is Pawnee Bill like a, a famous person i'm sorry for my, for oh, my ignorance yeah. But uh, <laughs> yeah i kind of forget that that yeah my familiarity is not everybody's familiarity so pawnee bill he was a, a wild west 
show owner, I guess that's what you would call it. He is, you know, contemporary with Buffalo Bill, sorry, with Buffalo Bill. And eventually they uh, combined their shows. But my family's unique connection to it was that he swindled, took, somehow, you know, obtained my, I want to say grandfather, but my great, great grandpa's uh, allotment right there at Pawnee. So if you come there now, uh, there's a big mansion, a museum and everything that's set up, you know, to interpret Pawnee Bill and Pawnee Bill Wild West show. It's on Blue Hawk Peak. And that's my grandpa. Kutawikutsu Tadeus. So it's a strange connection. But if you get to looking around on the internet, you'll find some stuff. He's supposed to have been like this, um, oh, you know, frontier character that could speak fluent Pawnee. And it's all just not true. He couldn't really speak <laughs> Pawnee. He, I've, I've found in, you know, my access to the boarding school records there at the Pawnee agency was that he was a teacher for the, uh, I think it was elementary age girls it appears to be and i don't know if you want me to get into the whole story or not because like i'll go for it i'm pretty sure this is published so anyway there was a him and the superintendent of the boarding school apparently were butting heads and there were some rumors going around of and there was innuendo about him and the students Take that for whatever it is. You know, you have to read into these letters when you see them. And it, it, it involved eventually into Pawnee, who became, oh, what was his real name? Gordon Lilly, I think, is his actual name. But Pawnee Bill hitting uh, the superintendent and getting fired. And then the Pawnee agent who is, you know, mere yards away. There's two different government organizations on the Pawnee Agency. Uh, he hired him as a, can't remember. I don't, I don't believe it was an interpreter. He hired him in some capacity. I can't remember what it was. And kind of, because he liked him. So who knows what kind of, you know, personal politics was going on. But the crazy thing, I'm like really digressing off topic. The crazy thing, there was this term in the letter called, uh, said that he was a toiler of wire. And anybody that's read 19th century, you know, correspondence or literature, you'll come across phrases and you're like, what in the hell is that? You know, and it, it took me, oh my gosh, I bet it three four weeks to figure out what that was and like track down all these little euphemisms, you know, from the last century. And apparently it means that you're a manipulator. So like if, if you go, you know, work that back as to where that comes from, you know, like a, he pulls your strings, he's a puppeteer. So a toiler of wire was somebody that pulled metal through a little hole and made wire so that's what they were referring to. He's pulling your strings. So now you know what toiler of wire. You can use that anytime you want to. Go ahead. Yeah, I was about to say, I'm going to have to add that to my uh, my, my repertoire of <laughs> things to call people. Wow. Yeah. So Pawnee Bill, yeah, interesting character, but couldn't speak a lick of Pawnee. There's a story there with the tribe. I remember hearing it when I was teenager, maybe junior high, something like that, about he had a, a, a trading post that apparently like sold groceries as well. And there was an old Pawnee woman that went in there and, you know, she had our, our tribe was kind of destitute as far as finances. And there was oftentimes where families didn't have money to buy food for the family to eat. So she went in and she was wanting to basically pick up some food and he was trying to impress somebody with his knowledge of Pawnee, but, Keep in mind, he can't speak Pawnee. And so she went up and was telling him in Pawnee that, you know, she went and eat all this food and all these kids. And, and he's shaking his head and, and smiling like he knows what's going on. And so she, he was um, shaking his head, yes. And so she kind of noticed this and basically worked it into, hey, I need to charge this and because uh, I don't have any money. Is that okay with you? And he's still shaking his head, yes, and acting like he knows what she's saying. And she ended up with a whole bunch of groceries and was able to go feed her family. But he had no idea what he was agreeing to. So, yeah. <laughs> well, fair enough, man. Well, I mean, so, I mean, clearly with your depth of knowledge, there's easily that 
acknowledgement of your love of history. So like, what was it? <laughs> so what was it that, that uh, when, when you were going to undergrad, uh, it was OSU, right? Yes. Oklahoma yeah. State University, Oklahoma. not Oregon State. <laughs> Should we, uh, Wyoming and what, OSU share the same mascot, that same cowboy? Yeah, but OSU, oh, I say ours. Ours is a real person. It's, it's uh, Frank Eaton from Perkins, Oklahoma, who was a cowboy in the Cherokee Strip. And, you know, I can pull up all kinds of pictures of him, but I don't think Wyoming's is actually a real person. It's it's the same mascot. Yeah, it's the same. Yeah. Uh, and New Mexico State has the same exact mascot as well. Oh, well yeah, right. yeah. Fair enough. So why why history at undergrad when you were given the the choices of majors? <laughs> Long, funny story. So in high school, somehow, I don't even remember how this came about. I decided I wanted to be a forest ranger. And I you know, living in the mountains away from everybody just seemed like an awesome idea. And, you know, you have to have botany to be a forest ranger. This is my thinking. So I had looked around and looked around at different colleges in my senior year and found some that, you know, offered those degrees and started making tracks towards it. And then my family at the time, oddly enough, my family, we were living in Pennsylvania. And so we moved back to Oklahoma and, and uh, kind of put several of those schools kind of out of the realm of possibility because of the distances to travel. So I uh, started looking into Oklahoma State and I found, well, you know, if you have, if your grades aren't too hot, which I had spent some time in my junior and senior year having fun in high school instead of being a good student, that you should probably go to like a JUCO and kind of build up your grades and then transfer in. And eventually I found out, oh, I have a math deficiency. So in Oklahoma, I had enough math credits to graduate, but I didn't have a math, enough math credits to get into college, which pretty much puts you in a limbo. So I ended up going to a JUCO, getting my math credits up. And then since I was there already, I thought, well, I might as well get my associate's degree. And they did not offer anything in forestry or, or botany. And so the only major that was open that I was even remotely interested in was history. So I, I chose that as my passing major, you know, to get in. And then once I got in there, I found out I had a knack for it. So I just kind of stuck with it. And then it just grew, you know, something that was a hobby and personal interest turned into this passion. So and is that what kind of made you decide to continue and get a, a graduate degree? Was that kind of passion and, you know, the knack that you had of it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the more I got into it, there's just so many fascinating stories. It it doesn't really matter, you know, what topic or region that you pick in history. Eventually you're going to find these stories that are just almost too hard to believe that have actually occurred, you know, and stuff that's strange, so strange you'd never believe it if they put it into a movie. And that was the kind of things that just, fascinated me you know that that people living people had actually been and done these things that just seemed fantastical and and uh you know eventually just because of my own you know personal background and everything that you, you know love of american history turned into a love of indian history which turned into you know everything and i was doing focusing on american indian topics whether that was language religion whatever Gotcha. And that applied history, but that was also at OSU, correct? Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, sweet. And so like, once you got that degree, what did you plan on doing with it? Like, what was the career trajectory <laughs> at that time? <laughs> I see a pattern in me. <laughs> As I was finishing up my bachelor's degree, I had pretty much come to the decision that I was going to go into, you know, post-grad work. And but I hadn't really decided what I wanted to do with it. There was, you know, there was all these possibilities. And naturally, you know, when you're in college, you, the, all the people that you're around, your mentors and everything, you start thinking of, well, hey, I could become a college professor. But the more and more that I worked around all this, somehow museums kind of came into my target range. And I don't. I was sitting here thinking as I was talking, I don't remember how 
I decided on, you know, focusing on uh, museums, any just working in museums as a career. I can't remember how I came to that point. But my thought was I, I wanted to try to shape my studies and my degree to where I could either work in museums or become a professor. And with the program at OSU at the time, I, I'm assuming it's probably the same. You can't do that. You have to decide which path you want to go. So with museum studies, even though you're doing the same courses, you're going through the same lectures and, and, and you have to produce the same kind of material, you know, at the end, they call that a report, I think, instead of a, a thesis. Same same amount of pages, same everything. They just change the word. And then if you were going to go into, you know, get a PhD in history to become a professor, you know, you're going to go into a different coursework and, and it would be a thesis. But there's some key classes in there that are completely different. So like with my museum studies course, a lot of it was theory, ethics. You know, you're looking at, at the time, the Smithsonian had tried to do a big exhibit on the Enola Gay, and it was kind of, a, it turned into a big political thing, and there were lots of ethical questions about putting that on display and so forth. And so that was like the big hot topic at the time. And, you know, historians, they don't study any of that. They just write esoteric pages about something that you really don't care about. <laughs> you know, we, had, we, we had to study the Enola Gay thing, too. In our, in our museum theory class in ethics, we had to talk about the Enola Gay yeah. controversy. So that's pretty funny that you yeah, got to do it real time. And we got to look at it two decades later. Oh, that, thanks. Make me feel old. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of my favorite histor- history classes was about the creation or the, or the birth, I guess, maybe of the tax system in feudal Europe. Uh, is of no use to me in my life at all, but man, it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where the word sheriff comes from. <laughs> I think we all have those courses that, oh my gosh. Yeah. It's, I think I took a, a history of philosophical thought where you w- went through like all the philosophers from like Socrates to like Plato to like, Uh-oh. oh my gosh, I learned so much, but it was like, you know, in modern day, as an archaeologist, I cannot, I will not be citing Socrates or Plato <laughs> as part of these sort of things. <laughs> you know, one of the, I got into a philosophy class and I quickly checked myself out of that one within the two week window. Uh, but because they had uh, like a pop up quiz before you, that, that time closes where you can check out. And uh, one, of the, one of the questions that I remember that I failed apparently was, you know, what is a chair and, and that it's not really a chair. It's just our concept of a chair. And I, I probably still can't wrap my mind about what it was they were talking about, but yeah, I got out of that one. But the craziest thing is, is that one of the classes that I used the most was another philosophy class, but it was like, I'm trying to remember what the title was. It was basically like a logical argument and I use it all the time. It's, it's insane. I wish I could go back and take it again, to be honest. I'd probably get more out of it. Well, fair enough. Well, on that note, we're going to go ahead and wrap up this segment. We'll be right back with episode 85 with Matt Reed. Welcome back to episode 85 of a Life in Ruins podcast. I'm talking with Matt Reed. And we wanted to start the segment off talking about some of your time spent at the Oklahoma Historical Society. So could you explain to us you know, what that society is and what you did for them? Sure. So Oklahoma Historical Society actually got started, uh, I want to say maybe 1892. There's probably somebody out there cringing. I should know this. But they got started collecting newspapers, and they still do that today. So if you if there's any town uh, that's ever existed in Oklahoma that had a newspaper, they have at least one copy of that newspaper. And more than likely, they've got a, every copy that it ever printed. So there's some really... Uh, if you're into history, there's some really cool stuff in there. You'll find out that the good old days were not so good. The murders were pretty frequent. <laughs> but uh, Cases so, of the black lung. Yeah, you change. know, child labor, <laughs> that kind of good stuff, good stuff. <laughs> and uh, 
but I got started there. Uh, so as I was finishing up my grad school, the last semester is just like really focusing on my master's thesis. And I was working at an archives for fire protection programs there at Oklahoma State. And another friend of mine uh, was working as a secretary. We we're both in museum studies. And she was working as a secretary in a different office. And she got a lead on volunteering at OHS and, you know, tossed me a, a cookie. And we, we both went down there and started volunteering within about, oh, my gosh, pretty quick, three, six months. It turned into a part time job. And so I just transitioned straight from grad school into working for the Oklahoma Historical Society as a curatorial assistant. And at the time, I guess, you know, uh, the leadership of the agency or whatever, that they were already putting plans together to build a, a new museum. The, the building that they were in at the time had been built in 20 or 21. And they had far outgrown it probably in the 50s or 60s you know there was collections being stored in the attic it was a building that uh, was designed for natural airflow so it's not good for a museum and uh, it was just bad and so they started hiring more staff at the time when we started volunteering there was one curator for the entire state museum and at times previous they didn't have any curators so they started hiring more and more staff, and we just transitioned right in. And within, oh, probably two years, they were kind of making or insinuating that, you know, I needed to f kind of focus on what type of collection I wanted to work on or kind of specialize in. And it's probably not as popular these days, but I have this crazy fascination with firearms and it kind of goes in with the military history thing. And so it, it's always been, you know, just a hobby. And my dad, he kind of contributes this to it, you know, as well, being a veteran and everything. So there was nobody there that knew anything about weapons at all, which is kind of scary. And I just kind of became the curator of firearms there for a while. And then when the next position came open, it was to take care of their Indian collections. And so I just kind of married the two together works real well in Oklahoma because there's a lot of veterans that are American Indian. So I put together a uh, military history exhibit that everybody was surprised it had so many Indians in it. And I just looked at them like they were crazy. Like, why wouldn't it have Indians in it? <laughs> so that's, that's how I got into the OHS. Since it's a historical society and does a historical society only concern itself with your American history in the Americas or is the term historical being given a broader meaning at the state museum or state society? Mm, well, that's a good question. The thing, I mean, OHS, I feel like I'm pretty confident in saying that, that when it was created, that was its focus. That was its goal. I would dare to say that probably their early, they started collecting American Indian objects as soon as they started collecting newspapers in the 1890s and fortunate or unfortunate, you know, but I think it was a part of that vestige of we, meaning Indians, we're all going to die and we're going to disappear. So we got to save something, you know, of these people to kind of document their existence. So, you know, that's the majority of its history. It's just like everywhere else. But when it, it something to their, in their favor, I don't, I don't know what I'm saying there, is uh, in the 1980s, you know, like all museums, probably OHS had some human remains and things like that in their collections. But in the 1980s, they started repatriating this back uh, to tribes before NAGPRA was ever a topic. And, and so by the time NAGPRA came around, there was just a handful of, you know, objects you know, of cultural patrimony to repatriate back. So they did a good job there. You know, I had to give them credit where credit's due. And then, you know, the time that I was there and it was transitioning from a state museum into a, a history center and, and all this, the, the idea of what they were, their identity, what they did was, it's, was changing. I assume it still is changing, you know, where it becomes, 
we can put things, art objects out on display, you know, like Alan Hauser or somebody like that and, and talk about it, not only as art, but as in the context of when, when it was going on and when it was being created. So there is a, like a history aspect to it, but it's also, it's an art exhibit. I say we, you know, from the time I was there, we were always doing stuff like that that was kind of going cross philosophies, uh, I guess is what you could say. Whether it was art, history, culture, we had a couple of exhibits that was just kind of focused more anthropology, I guess, than than history. So, yeah. And I think that's the general trend. So what made you decide to transition from a career that had a decent amount of funding, decent amount of support? <laughs> to then becoming a tribal historic preservation officer for a, a relatively small tribe. Oh, yeah, this is fun. So any job that you work in, especially when you work at one for 18 years, personalities start, you know, kind of conflicting and you know, people say things and it rubs you the wrong way. And people that don't know what the hell thing is going on, they're looking at you like you're weird or something. But there, there were numerous occasions I mean, throughout my career with working with the Indian collections and taking care of it, that things would be said or something, you know, would be said in passing. And I always just, you know, kind of cocked my head to the side and looked at them like, what? You know, and nobody else ever seemed to catch it. But obviously I thought, well, maybe it's just me. And these things, you know, they happened off and on, not not regularly, but, you know, not irregularly. And. I guess the final, man, I don't know whether to say this or not. I guess I should, might as well. The final straw that broke the camel's back, I was asked or told, really, to go down and catalog all of the southwestern pottery that was in the collection so that they could sell it. And I I don't believe that they actually did this. I think there was an attempt to do it. But, I mean, ethically, it just tore me up inside. On one hand, everything that they had, it had to focus on Oklahoma. And the whole reason, like, why do we have Southwestern pottery in the Oklahoma Historical Society? And it, it, uh, it kind of goes back to, like, what I was talking about, you know, Indians are all dying off. We need to save something. So when they, they needed pottery for their collection, so they just sent a guy on a train out to – Arizona and the Four Corners, and this dude bought pottery and, you know, from well-known potters now, but at the time, nobody knew who they were. And they still had the crate that the dude shipped it back to Oklahoma in. That was kind of a crazy thing. So there was a huge collection of Southwestern pottery, and, and they uh, uh, somebody saw that this is a revenue source, and so I got the orders to catalog it, make this nice, you know, photos and, and uh back history, you know, like, like what you would see with Sotheby's or Butterfields or something. And I just said, I'm not, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. I, I started off saying, I'm not going to do that. And they really got riled up. And then when I said, I can't do that, they acted like, oh, well, that's good. You know, your ethics and da, da, da. And so I, it was just really, really bothered me to my core. And this was all going on simultaneously with like, Standing Rock and the Dakota Access Pipeline. It kind of puts you in my, I guess, frame of mind. And in in the way I was looking at it is uh, the entire world was against anything that was Indian, and they were playing it out to a T. So the current the Tippo at that time, I think he had decided that he was going to go back to college and get a law degree if I remember correctly. So he resigned his position, and I found out that the tribe was going to be looking for a tribal historic preservation officer. Well, my applied history program, I took courses in historic preservation. I could do this. So I put my name in the bucket, and I don't know, maybe I'm the best qualified. Well, obviously, I was the best qualified. I got the job, but that's how I got into this position. And then when I got there, quickly found out that people had not adequately described what the job was. There's a tremendous amount of mail that comes in. It's phenomenal. You know, Section 106 uh, applications for sidewalks, culverts, roads, highways, cell towers, mowing the lawn. 
uh, at national parks. And then you have the Air Force in, in our cultural landscape. You have the Air Force Academy, three, four different Air Force bases, a couple of different Army bases, and then, you know, a hodgepodge of federal agencies. And I, I consistently have a stack of, of just paperwork, 106 app submissions, that's probably eight inches tall on my desk at all times that just rotates through. And that's just the paper. I get the same thing in email. So it's a, it's a crazy <laughs> amount. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I make some really cool graphs that I turn into the national park service at the end of the year for like what I've been doing. So. Gotcha. So did your family warn you about going to Pawnee and working back? The <laughs> yes. My aunt and, um, her sister, my mom, uh, that's where I get my Pawnee blood is from my mom. And uh, they had both worked uh, at different times at the BIA. Actually, no, they had both worked simultaneously at the BIA and then for the tribe. My mom, for a while, was the administrative assistant to the executive director. And so they're kind of a very pivotal person in the tribe, even to this day, they, they kind of have their pulse on everything that's going on. So, and this was all early eighties or so. And my aunt, she eventually retired from IHS. So at Pawnee, we are fortunate that we have our, we have a clinic there. It services a number of tribes, but it's headquartered in Pawnee. So she just retired from IHS not too many years ago. And then uh, my mom, she quit working for the tribe back in the eighties, but both of them were just like, are you sure you want to work for the tribe? You know, and they can, and if there's anything to me, it's naivete. <laughs> so I just kept, I was like, well, yeah, of course I did not understand what it was they were saying or where they were coming from, but I do now. So, <laughs> there, you know, it's, it's a job just like every other job. And there's there's personal politics and bureaucracy and everything else. So I, I understand fully what they meant now. So What does a day in the life of a, a, a TIPO look like besides filing through the 8 to 11 inches of, of paperwork and the same amount in digital? Kind of, oh, kind my of God. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you're never going to get bored. I would venture to say that the majority of tribes are probably in the same boat that we are, where you have one person that's funded by the National Park Service Historic Preservation Grant, and that's it. You know, some tribes are well off, whether it's through casino revenues or for, through oil revenue, and they might have a staff of 20, 30 people. Uh, and then each one of them gets parceled out into doing different tasks, but I got to do it all. So. You have to, for me at least, I have to keep track of everything that's going on or else I'm going to get lost and drown, you know, in, in the workload. So one of the things that I created when I came in there was this uh, an Excel spreadsheet, just like logging each piece of correspondence in uh, because everything that comes in has you have a 30 day window to have some kind of response or else they just naturally assume that you don't have any problem with anything they're doing and they move forward with the project, which that's, you know, for sovereignty's sake, that's not what you want. So every piece is initialed, it's dated, it goes into that Excel spreadsheet. And then I use uh, Google Earth to basically locate where this project is using GIS and plot it. So I have one set of data that's the section 106 is, and then that overlies our cultural landscape which is composed of archaeological sites sacred sites places that we went to say harvest buffalo any kind of natural resource to be honest it could be flint plants that were medicines I'm trying to think what else just you know things like that and then trying to think what else oh trails in nebraska especially where we live most of those immigrant trails whether it's the california even the pony express the santa fe trail all those things were overlaying onto a pre-existing network of roads that were indigenous and that gets left out all the time so i have all of that 
And I just overlay the 106 stuff on top of it. And if it's near something, usually if it's about three miles, you know, from the from any one of those sites, if it's an, an important site, you know, not like an isolated find. Oh, somebody signed a flake over here. I'll request like a pedestrian survey or something more thorough. And then if it's really close to something that's important, like one of our sacred sites, we'll, we're going to have to put the brakes on this job and we're going to have to go into like a more thorough consultation and try to find something to mitigate whatever kind of damage it is that they're going to do. So all that stuff gets logged. And then like I, I made reference to a report that I have to supply to the park service. So at the end of the calendar year, I have to produce a report for the grant that I've just finished. And it would, it basically, it's going to have everything that I just described in there. In addition to say like the, the uh, conference that we just were at. So that'll go into this report. If I talk to school kids up the street about Pawnee history, that goes into the report. If I'm doing class tomorrow night on Pawnee pottery, trying to kind of get uh, the community involved in making pottery again. So that'll go into the report. I've done some GPR work out at our cemetery looking for unmarked graves. That'll go into the report. It just anything that I do any kind of activity, all of that starts to accumulate in there. So it's not just 106 work that I do. It's all, it's a bunch of stuff. And then because I'm a staff of one this past year on two different occasions, I went up to Nebraska, uh, one for a Nebraska department of transportation project. And then one for a USDA flood control dam project where they were there was potential to impact some earth lodges. Uh, one, the dam was a, a site that had never been excavated. We didn't know, nobody knew how many earth lodges were going to be in this little area. So we went up, or I went up to watch them do the work. And uh, they did shovel tests. We call it test, I started to say trench, but I think it was just a square. And they went down until they found cultural material sifting, you know, and then kind of documenting what they found. And it's pretty much the same thing with NDOT, but the project was on a road that's already into a um, archaeological site. So they wanted to see how close the how close to the project the archaeological materials were going to come. So monitoring, you know, and basically I could just go up there and watch and and talk to the archaeologist and and see what's there. And I guess on their end it probably is a little bit more convenient because the tip is standing right there. So if they need to get a split second decision from Pawnee nation, I can just give it to them. It's and whereas if I sent a cultural monitor, well, they'd have to contact me and then, you know, there'd be all this back and forth correspondence. And then before a decision could be made. Unless you had a deputy tipo that was trained as an archeologist, that'd be able to make. Well, that. unless I had a, yeah, a whole archaeology and a staff of, of monitors and, you know, this and that. Yeah, that'd be awesome. <laughs> somebody well, that man. just does GPR, somebody that just, just does GIS. Yeah, that'd be sweet. <laughs> one day, one day. One day, one day. It's coming, man. If, if I think, well, you know, 2012 was the first year that we got a TIPO, uh, got a TIPO grant. Previous to that, there was somebody of the tribe doing all this, but they weren't being funded at all by the feds. So we didn't really technically have a TIPO. So, you know, till 2012, all of this that we're talking about was just a dream. They had no idea that uh, the level that we, this was going to go. So it's not out of the realm of likelihood. Well, all right. And on that note, we'll go ahead and wrap this segment up and we'll be right back with segment three of episode 85. Welcome back to episode 85 of a Life and Ruins podcast. This is segment three. Uh, we are talking with Matt Reed, who is the TIPO for the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma. And as we alluded to in the first segment, you and Carlton just spent a little bit of time together. Carlton, could you explain what you what you hosted and uh, how that went? Yeah, so we just hosted the annual Plains Anthropological Society meeting. It's hosted in Boulder this year. It was supposed to be hosted last year, but because of COVID, we pushed it forward. And I cajoled Matt into being one of my panel discussants for a panel discussion 
So the name of the discussion was Archaeology and Indigenous Cultural Heritage Preservation, a panel discussion with indigenous tippos, NACPR officers, educators, and attorneys. And the whole purpose was to get a bunch of folks associated with their cultural heritage to talk about their experiences in their roles, as well as kind of talk to archaeologists about what they could be doing better and hopefully inspire the next generation of archaeologists to collaborate with the descendant communities that they find their material culture fascinating. So I brought in Matt and uh, originally like a bunch of others, but because of COVID, not everyone could make it. And we ended up like getting some last minute people on the spot who just happened to be at the conference, like Mary Baker and Chance Ward, who (laughs) were like in the audience. And I was like, no, 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 you're going to come up here. So yeah. And uh, it ended up being three hours which was not how I originally intended it. So it went from 9 a.m. 9 a.m. to noon. I know you had mentioned it briefly, but like what what were kind of the big things that you discussed or kind of came out from that session with with knowledge of or like ideas of? To be honest, I mean, I, I came in, to, I didn't know what to expect. Well, you know, for one, that's not, this is my first time I've ever been to a anthropology or archaeology conference well i take that back i was at a, a nautical archaeology conference in austin one year that was crazy but so i i didn't really know what to expect and then you know carlton kind of sent us out some a guide uh bulleted you know what am i trying to say outline of what we were going to talk about and so forth and and i was just like hmm I don't, I don't know where this is. This could either go south really bad or it could be really productive and, and I don't know, nurturing, you know, positive. It's, I guess it was positive. I mean, I felt like I talked the whole time, like I hogged the microphone. Everybody afterwards coming up and asking questions and expressing their good opinions about it, it seemed like it, it – we made some kind of impact, I guess, you know, in the years, the succeeding years, succeeding years, we'll uh, figure out whether or not it was a good or a bad impact. So if, if it all goes south in the next couple of years, it's all my fault. So, <laughs> yeah, so uh, it was three hours and I, I had built in breaks at the top of every hour. And my deepest fear was like at the top of the first hour, it was just going to empty out and it was just going to be. <laughs> a little drum circle in the corner of just us kind of talking to each other. But it ended up being like standing room only for all of it. Like it was packed. And the reason why it was a small room, because people were asking about it was because that was the only room that didn't have sessions before or after to allow for a space for us to kind of, we wouldn't feel rushed was kind of the point. So that's why we'd had the room it, it was. And it wasn't like a small room. I mean, it was a regular sized conference room, but. And that, yeah. that, that's like not, that's abnormal in, in some conferences and especially these smaller conferences like the planes or, you know, things like that to have like it like packed like that. I mean, I think you see it at some sessions at maybe the SAA or something like that, but sometimes you're lucky if you get like five to 10 people. I know all the stuff that I presented at was like, Hey, there's my two friends in the back and then there's some random person up here. So that's, that's exciting to hear that there was, it was, um, so packed. And so, uh, I don't, I don't think I saw an empty seat in there the entire time. And you know, that's the other thing too. Uh, like I'm surprised that you, when you said you didn't intend for it to go that long, I I was surprised it went that long, but I thought that was the intent was for it to go that long. So yeah, I figured maybe two hours, but the conference organizers were like, "No, we need to have this." So they're like, "Here's your three hour entire morning Friday session." Ooh. At a time slot, we knew everyone was supposed to be there, so we got a primo primo spot. Unfortunately, my co-organizer, Emily, wasn't able to make it because she had to do like Wintergren app edits and you only get like a week or two to do those. And so she couldn't come at the end of the day, which was which was sad. But we had a pretty good crowd. Uh, crowd. So Matt, representing the Pawnee Nation, was there. Lance Foster from the Iowa. Mary Baker. Mary Baker. I almost said Emily, but Mary, uh, <laughs> Mary Baker from uh, Mandan, Hidatsa, Rikura, three affiliated tribes. And... Uh, 
Chance Ward, who's a graduate student here who worked for the Southern Ute Tipo. He's Lakota. And then we had a Native American Rights Fund attorney who worked with Dakota Access Pipeline. So we had like a really good mix. We had Tipos, NACPA officers, tribal off, uh, chairs. We had, a, we had a good diverse crowd. And, and my hesitancy, like kind of what, like one, we also had Q&As. So I did allow space for not only like my list of questions, but also to open up for the audience. And we got some pretty good ones, but we also got got a couple that were a little out out there, to say the yeah. least. Interesting. Yes. If you if anyone knows who Alice Kehoe is, we we got Kehoed is how I've been has how I was told. We all got Kehoed. Very similar to being frizzed, I guess, <laughs> under the same vein. But Matt, I guess, like, what was your takeaway from that from that session in general? Oh, from all of it or just her? <laughs> no, not Alice Kehoe, from all of it. <laughs> uh, it. It was interesting. I mean, it, and I, I think this came out like when I was talking, you know, my perception of what I think people know or how what they should feel or what they think is usually completely different than what uh, reality is. Um, you know, the older I get, the more I find that out. So... I, I just didn't know. I didn't know what I was going to be asked. I don't know what kind of impact I made because, like you know, I I felt like I was saying things that everybody should have known. But apparently, maybe I I not just me, but all of us. Like apparently, we were saying some things that nobody had heard until then for the first time. So, uh, yeah, different. There was a couple of tough questions in there, and I say tough, it, you know, it made you kind of put you back in the place you were when you're describing what it was that was going on. So that was kind of tough. But uh, yeah, other than that, it's just like I hope I did a good job at like conveying what the profession is from our side, you know, historic preservation, what that's like, you know, from our side, what it is that we're after, why we do this, why we do that, that sort of thing. So you know, keep my fingers crossed that I was lucid enough, I guess, to like get the right words out there. So for sure. And Carlton, you've been attending the Plains conferences quite frequently. Is this something that normally happens a a panel like this or representation from maybe diverse communities? Does that happen very often at the Plains conference? Oh God, no. Usually the indigenous folks there, it's like me, Emily, Mary Baker was at the last one, last two, and that's kind of it. Like, there's just no one. So the fact that I brought a panel that just having the panel had the most indigenous participation since, like, Lincoln, Lincoln Conference. But I was told, like, right after I was approached by next year's conference organizers to host the session again or something similar. And then I was approached by members of the Plains board that said, we should have been doing these every year and we need to have one every year from now on. Like, that's how important they felt about it. I mean, one thing that happened, like it was, there were some times it got emotional. Like there were times where not only us were emotional, but like people in the audience were wiping away tears. Like, and I think like what someone mentioned to me is like, you know, they expect us us as indigenous people working in our, in our, in our material culture to be angry. Like they expect that. And so they're used, they're used to that, but they weren't, they weren't used to, and they weren't expecting some of the other emotions that we brought in with some of the personal experiences, because they've never had to deal with that before. And that I think was a humanizing moment for those in attendance where they could just feel how like, you know, there, there was a point when we were getting keyhoed. One of the responses was, you know, it, it doesn't matter. This is by Mary Baker. It doesn't matter who buried them, where, where, why. We're going to treat everyone the same. And the, the most important thing is to get them in the ground. It doesn't matter to us this issue of cultural affiliation. That's an archaeology thing. You guys made that up. We don't care about that. To us, we're going to treat everyone like our relatives. When we were talking about NAGPRA, and so like that was, I think, like a lot of people, you, you look in the crowd, their eyes kind of opened up because they never thought about it that way because that's what they're taught. NACPA is about cultural affiliation. This is why we need to do it. And to hear from all these tribal folks in the front saying, it doesn't matter to us. Like they're regardless of what language they spoke, religion they had, like they're still our relatives. 
and we want to give them the respect. And we don't like if a Lakota buries a reburies a Pawnee through Lakota prayers, he might get teased in the afterlife, but <laughs> at the end of the day, he's back where he belongs and vice versa, you know? And I think that was important for them to hear that. And Matt was critical in, in, a, in a lot of that in mean, some of his answers and providing a space. And it was like Matt said, I was worried about the conference because it could have gone cattywampus real quick, depending on who had the microphone or how some of, you know, but I heard, have heard nothing but good things. Um, and it gave a lot of things to, for people to think about. Yeah. I was just talking about it today at lunch. I was having lunch with, Marty only chief, our NAGPRA officer, and Herb Edson, our cultural resource division director. And I was talking about this, you know, and telling them like some of the questions that we were asked and all that. And it was, they kind of had the same reaction, like, like what we're talking about, you know, is, I don't know, I, I, I guess that's the surprising part is that there's a whole group of people out there that didn't know, you know, that the most important thing is to rebury these folks, that kind of thing. You know, so, yeah, interesting. And look forward to it at the Next Plains Conference and hopefully at other conferences. There will be similar things going <laughs> forward. Yeah. Well, next one's in Oklahoma. So I'm, I'm hoping to get more Pawnee folks out there who are also anthropologists. Get our language guys out there. Marty, our seed preservation program, like have a whole session just on what's going on in Pawnee anthropology. I think that'd be. Cool. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that's going to be hard at all, at least from, from us. You know, I hope that, you know, every tribe has a, a tipo or I, not every tribe has an NAGPRA officer, but I hope that the ones that are pertinent to the topic, that they'll have somebody there, you know, to represent them. But other, other than the session, how else did you think the conference went? Because you ended up meeting a lot of people. Yeah. Well, I got I got flooded with just meeting people. I've only read their books or something like that. So it was really kind of interesting. Don Blakesley, uh, he written a, a book about one of our sacred sites, um, Wakanda Lake. So that was kind of cool to, to see, to meet somebody that was not completely, un, why am I trying to say this? Like he knew Wichita and Pawnee history and, and sites and things. So it, that was kind of a trip to, you know, meet somebody like that. And then, uh, dang, I think all of Nebraska archaeology, like all their staff was there. I'd be surprised if there was somebody not there. And then there was a couple of the Kansas archaeologists, uh, Bob Horde, I think. Yeah. And then uh, who else was it? Mary Elizabeth Darren. Finn. Yeah. Mary Adair. I got to talk to her. <laughs> that was funny. I was asking her questions about the Wichita sites just because of my own curiosity. And like, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And it had nothing to do with Pawnees. <laughs> but um, I was trying to remember who else. Yeah, it was just kind of just crazy to like you know, a lot of names that I just see in reports or referenced in you know, studies and things like, oh, here's the actual person. So it was kind of cool. The one thing I wish, and I'm, I think I asked you, uh, Carlton, about this. I wanted to talk with somebody that was, quote unquote, an expert, you know, in like ancient Pawnee ceramics, because I have some like very specific questions about construction and so forth. And, and you told me somebody and then like I never got the opportunity to ever speak yeah, to anybody. I, I it, it was, yeah, it was Mike Page from Univera, uh, from Wyoming. Yeah. Because I saw him the day before and I was like, oh, Mike Page is here. But I didn't see him after that. Once you showed up, I couldn't. I never saw Mike Page because he knows how to make CPT Central Plain Tradition pottery. Well, and I had all these plans, you know, the app. I pulled it up where I was going to go sit in on all these Wichita things because it's, you know, it's pretty close to us and in Kansas, I was going to go do this and go do it. I didn't get to do any of it. So yeah, I think very those, disappointed. Those, those maps can be, or those apps can be daunting. Cause I end up like putting like this, that schedule into my calendar, but then never end up following that. And you're like, Oh crap, I'm missing this session. Yeah. But I want to go to this session. It's like, well, I missed, I don't know how many, thinking that I was going to be able to attend them. And no, they're going on at the same time that I'm driving across the plane. So I didn't get to go to those at all. Yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting. Archaeology conferences are not like museum conferences. I'll tell you that right now. Um, you know, museum conferences, there's a lot of stuff in there, you know, how to build mounts and how to, you know, how different, 
materials interact with stuff that you're storing and there's, you know, there's conservators there and all this and, and kind of some real like professional development how to kind of stuff. And yeah, that's not what this is at all. So it was, it's different. It was real uh, intellectual. You know, that's kind of a, a change in history conferences. Ugh. I, if you just don't want to go and hear somebody read something to you, that's, that's, that's your, that's your line right there. So awesome. thank God well, it wasn't that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on to the show. We really appreciate you. Yeah. Just coming on and chatting with us. I know Carlton was very excited to have you on. So yeah, thank you. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know if I'm a fanboy, but I've listened to <laughs> damn near every one of these podcasts. So, I mean, I've got an hour. I live in near Oklahoma City, so I commute back and forth to the office. It's an hour both ways. So I listen to a lot of podcasts. Well, what was it like a week ago when I mistakenly called you and Marty an elder while you were listening to in the Yes. Uh, oh, the my God. Marty about <laughs> had a conniption fit. She was just like, looked at me with her eyes wide and her mouth agape. And she's like, I am not an elder. <laughs> so, so, you know, I don't know how every tribe does it, but I'll just tell everybody out there right now. So for Pawnees, you know, elders are a very specific group of people. Just because you're elderly does not make you an elder. It's it's uh, an older person that has privileged knowledge, you know, that they've been around ceremonies. Their family has conducted ceremonies for generations, you know, and you go to them and ask them these important questions on protocol and, and things like that. So an elder is very upper class, I guess, you know, in a way. And so like, and then neither one of us are old. So, yeah. so we were both just like, like, I listen to rap. I'm not old. Quit it. You know? So yeah, yeah. It was funny. Excellent. Well, before we end the show, what are a couple of uh, sources? These would be books, articles, videos, or, or what have you, blogs that you would recommend for anyone interested either in, in Pawnee culture or history, museums, Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, I, if there's one thing about me that I wouldn't argue with anybody is I'm a big nerd. So I have lots of books here at my house, in my office and everything. So I, I got a short list of uh, and this is not by any means the comprehensive list, but a short list of books about Pawnee history and culture that if anybody's interested in, they could go and pick up and kind of maybe learn something. And they're in no particular order of importance, but uh, Lost Universe by Gene Weltfish. It's a, it's a unique book. I don't want to say it's a, a historical novel, but it doesn't have footnotes and stuff. But it was created uh, by talking to uh, Pawnee elders that had you know made the trip down here from Nebraska, but it was in the 20th century. So maybe first generation you know that was born here in oklahoma and then some of the folks that actually came down another one if you want a good grasp of pawnee the pawnee world when we met the first americans there's a book called indian sketches that was written by john treat irving and he's the nephew of washington irving the guy that wrote Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle. It's actually, it's a pretty easy to read, but all of the places that he visited are archaeological sites. And so I, I take tours of our tribal members to these places and can like relate stories of, you know, we're standing right here and this is what happened and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, another good one, if, you know, we're getting into like some books to like, oh, I don't know, you know, dealing with the reality of our tribe and what we went through. One's called The Unspeakable Sadness, The Dispossession of the Nebraska Indians by David Wishart. I used that when I was in grad school and just recently started going back to it and it holds up. It's a really solid book. And then there's two books by this lady who, she's not Indian, but she was married to a Pawnee, Wichita Blaine. Her name is Martha Royce Blaine. And uh, her husband was raised by his grandparents who were among those that were removed from which, uh, Wichita, uh, among those removed from Nebraska. And so he had 
pretty good knowledge of like our oral history, ceremonies, songs, and, and so forth. And then she was a historian. And so um, she wrote a lot of her uh, professional career about us. So one of those is called Some Things Are Not Forgotten, A Pawnee Family Remembers. And then the other one is called Pawnee Passage. And Pawnee Passage deals specifically with the time frame prior to and right after our removal from Nebraska. And then my personal favorites, not about Pawnee history. There's two books by Charles Mann named 1491 and 1493. That'll kind of blow your uh, walls out of your reality if you're not ready for it you know of what life was like in the americas before europeans and then what happened after the columbian exchange and then i mentioned uh, a, a historian up there at boulder i guess uh, elizabeth finn uh, she wrote two books one called pox americana uh, and then another one titled encounters at the heart of the world and they're not specifically about pawnees but they kind of tiptoe around our cultural landscape so it's really helpful to me and it oh man they're awesome books she's a really good historian did you so, not meet her at the conference yes i did okay just yeah, yeah, yeah we were out there waiting on that uh tour that kind of fell apart and uh she came up and uh, i it was the first time i'd seen her since i was up at the lynch site and she was there so i was uh, once again, I was like, oh, my God, it's Elizabeth Van. Yeah, so it was great. <laughs> yeah, that's why I say I'm a big nerd. So, <laughs> And Marty, you know, at least she knew who it was because I forced her to listen to one of the books as an audio book. So <laughs> Marty got a, a history lesson, I guess, with her arm twisted behind her back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, and then I'll throw in the last one, uh, one that I used in grad school that uh, I tend to use it, well, it's methods a lot, like when I'm speaking to the public and trying to convey history and stuff, uh, uh, interpreting our heritage by Freeman Tilden, you know, just kind of how to talk to the public about a topic that they probably wouldn't pick up and read about in the first place. So, yeah, long list. And those will be in the uh, episode description, wherever you're listening to our podcast. And Matt, where can our listeners find you either on social media or contact you? <laughs> uh, well, let's see. I, I'm on Twitter. I don't put anything out of any interest on Twitter, but I'm on Twitter. Uh, I it says, on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get on there. I get actually, to be honest, I get a lot of my news from Twitter from actual reporters, not you know, weird people, but, um, yeah, I, every once in a while I might put out something, you know, that's reflective of the office, but it, if you search for my name, uh, it should pop up and then it yeah, has really. Pawnee nation tribal historic preservation officer. So There's yeah, sometimes I on there, man. Oh yeah. Well, you know, it's one of those like common English names. So naturally I, I got it and it's Pawnee now. So <laughs> Yeah, I'm on Facebook. Uh, if you can find me, there's a lot of Matt Reads on Facebook too. Guys that are professional or not professional, but uh, collegiate wrestlers and uh, rodeo cowboys and athletes, and they're all me. So, <laughs> all right, we'll share with you guys his Twitter handle. I can't find it. But do you know what your account name is? Chawee boy. Oh, and well, it's Chawee the old way. C H A U I. Yeah, for those that don't know, we have two linguists in our tribe, and they have basically revamped our alphabet and, you know, applied orthography and things to it. So we don't spell things the way we used to, say, five years ago. So we have our own letters. Dear Guthrie, Oklahoma, are those tornado sirens or flood sirens? There's <laughs> Yes. Oh, my gosh. These things went off at, like, 2.30 in the morning, and I'm like, it's storming. I'm like, okay, do I... <laughs> Do I run to the corner and quiver or am I safe? Because I live on a hill. Like, I don't know what this is. I need to get their act together. Excellent. Excellent. Awesome. Yeah. So, and because this is the show, A Life in Ruins, we have to ask each of our guests. So if you were given the chance again, would you still choose to live a life in ruins? Oh, undoubtedly. I just don't know which which uh, profession to be in, but yeah, it'd definitely be something related to history, without a doubt. 
Well, everyone, we just interviewed Matt Reed, the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma. You can find him on Twitter at Boy. You can find that in the episode description. And good luck finding Matt Reed on Facebook. <laughs> and please, please, for the love of all things holy, rate our podcast on iTunes, please. Just please. That's all I ask. Wherever, wherever you can rate us, please. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we have a merch store, you know, all this stuff is linked in our bio. So check out the merch. You can get a picture of our, our faces as Queebies. Is that what they're called? Chibis. 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 Yeah. Go there. And, buy some stuff. And the 80s throwback oh, yeah? art will be on we'll be on there once we get david back to the land of the living uh so yeah we have some new merch coming very excited cool. excellent and with that we are out thanks for listening to a life in ruins podcast you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at A Life in Ruins Podcast, and you can also email us at A Life in Ruins Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. So what do you call a paper airplane that can't fly? If it's an Indian airplane because it has nowhere to land, I will be upset. <laughs> I'm out of here. I'm done. <laughs> um, I've heard that oh, one. I've see. heard that one. <laughs> It's got to be something clever, dad joke. I, I can't think of anything. What is it? Stationary. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> Thank you, Connor. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.